Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This episode of Pod Save the People is brought to you by Cariuma, the sneaker brand reimagining classics with you and the planet in mind. When life gets hectic, it feels good to return to what you know. A walk in the fresh air, a phone call with an old friend, your grandma's favorite recipe, things like that. The same goes for the shoes you lace up before heading out the door. Basically, we're saying to keep the classics on hand. Timeless style doesn't just look good, but feels a lot better than passing trends. That's why Karyuma's best-selling Akka Canvas Sneaker is made with your comfort in mind. They even custom design their memory foam insoles to ensure a perfect fit. Karyuma ships all their sneakers free and fast in the USA and offers worldwide shipping and 60-day free returns. They deliver right to your front door using single-box recycled packaging. And for a limited time, Posse the People listeners can get an exclusive 15% off your pair of Karyuma sneakers. Go to C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash people to get 15% off. That's C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash people for 15% off only for a limited time. This is DeRay, and welcome to Positive of the People. In this episode, it's me, Kai, and Miles talking about all the underreported news of the week. And then I sit down with educator and filmmaker Gregory Cook to chat about his newest documentary, Invisible Warriors, African-American Women in World War II. Have you ever heard of Rosie the Riveter? You know, the white woman with the red bandana and her muscle up saying, we can do it? Well, this documentary zooms in on nine black women out of thousands who were hired to join the World War II effort. Professor Cook puts the historical World War II timeline in context for us as black people, a truly insightful conversation. Now, my advice for this week is to fight y'all. That like, you know, we're doing a lot of advocacy uh, in my organizer life and there are a million campaigns and we're going a mile a minute and it's worth it every single time. The, the way the status quo continues is that it tires you out. And the cool thing is that I'm in a community of people who believe and who want to fight. And I'm always reminded that organizing needs organization, which doesn't necessarily mean a 501c3. It doesn't mean like a committee, but you do just need to be in community with other people in some organized way. And it's one of those things where like, I've just seen incredible students. I've seen runners clubs. I've seen a whole host of people come together and build community to do good work. I hope that you have one to do it where you are. Here we go. Hey, Pod Save the People family. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode. We're so excited to be with you. I am Kaya Henderson, and you can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. I am Miles E. Johnson. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Feral Rapture. And I'm Dre at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. So we were not together last week when it was time for us to debrief the Super Bowl halftime show. So I'm bringing us right back because there was so much to talk about. So many things happening with what some people are saying was the best Super Bowl uh, halftime performance in history. If you are following social media, you know that every Prince fan in America decided that that was absolutely not true. But it was it was a show for the culture. It was a show for the culture. And so wondering what... And shout out to my little cousin, Kira Harper, who was one of Mary J. Blige's backup dancers. Ow! Mount Vernon's greatest. 
Um, so what y'all think, fellas? What was it? So I definitely think that it's not wasn't one of the best because I not only remember Prince, but I also remember Beyonce. Ah, oh, what? I'm so surprised to hear you say that, Miles. <laughs> <laughs> Beyonce, so that was a big, that was a landmark performance for her, and she ate that. But I do think it was really, I, th- I think it was a really great performance. I think that everybody did a really good job. Um, and I think that it just shows that hip-hop really is like that extension of rock and roll where it really brings a lot of excitement. I was watching Michael Jackson's Super Bowl performance, um, and, so, and just a lot, I was watching a lot of Super Bowl performances in general and just seeing how when pop and hip-hop really collide that really takes a stage because there's such an opportunity for spectacle when spectacle can meet nostalgia that's just like a really sweet spot for that pocket uh, i'm also really really interested in dr dre and i don't know if nobody i i i, I i'm so willing to be corrected on this but I was watching maybe a couple of months ago because I actually didn't see it when it came out. I was watching um, the 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 movie about um, Michelet, his ex girlfriend, and the horrendous things he did to Michelet. And I just don't understand how come there's this moment of Me Too of um, Bill Cosby, the reckoning with Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, and there just seems to be some big players who just, we, we're just unwilling to look at, and we're kind of repeating, we're just repeating certain, like, ha- like certain habits that we've had in the culture, and if you don't know, Dr. Dre had uh, allegedly uh, severely abused Michelle and beating her up, did daily pistol whipping her and it just seems like that's just something that nobody's willing to talk about and I just think that there's been so many collaborations that Dr. Dre has done with people who have publicly um, claimed um, feminist, black feminist pro-women, anti sexual assault stances who have been able to kind of collude and collide with him without there being any moment where Dr. Dre sits down and Talks about what happens to Michelle and 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 we really excavate like the, that that moment and it and I'll always feel a little icky about that. I will always feel icky about um, where um, Eminem kind of stands in the culture as somebody who was able to kind of really. Um, explore a lot like or or kind of exploit um a lot of homophobia in order to kind of get to where he was getting in the same the same kind of person who Joe Rogan is talking about this kind of like I'm a, I'm a man's man or I'm this suburban white man that's the same audience that Eminem was using homophobia to 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 galvanize back when I was younger and it just I, I will always kind of feel unsettled about about people getting these really big moments in, in culture that I think are impressive but then we we don't talk about it and then when we see them you know what happens 20 years from now we're like oh wow this was happening this was happening and can you believe where, where culture was um and that we let this happen and this person never had to um be accountable for this or never had to speak about this i'm like no if you get to have these big awards and 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 you get to have these big moments in culture then and and you want to take that then you also should be talking about that because you 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 ruined a woman's life. You've ruined a woman's career. And I think that's what kind of always gets me is that Dr. Dre did abuse Michelle, but also 
I'm, I'm not trying to bait, which is worse. But he also then, like, effectively ruined her career and systemically made sure she couldn't make money and couldn't advance. And it just makes me a little sad that there's not more rallying around that and not more standards about, like, you know what, we're, we, we're, we're not going to participate in that. It's not just Michelle Lay. I mean, the the big thing that was untalked about in hip hop for a long time, and Miles, this just goes to the conversation we were having about old people in hip hop. I will characterize it that way. Old people, I never said that. (laughs) You trying to? You trying to? (laughs) But but uh, D Barnes, who was, um, I think she was the host of Yo MTV Raps or um, some show on MTV, but D Barnes was doing an interview with Dr. Dre or whatever. She was actually, I think they were at a party and she was brutally beaten and maybe sexually assaulted by Dr. Dre. And maybe I want to say it was, it was a horrific attack in a very public place. Nobody did anything to stop it. And for years, she was telling people, yo, this dude is not right. This happened to me. For years, she was trying to get other people to tell her side of the story and support her. And very similarly, I mean, I just read something recently that says that, you know, she she literally had not been able to work again in hip hop or in the industry um, and that she's destitute now and, and whatnot. And every time Dr. Dre is recognized by people buying his company or, you know, uh, buying his company or gets these moments like the Super Bowl, nobody is talking about the horrific patterns, documented patterns of abuse and violence against women as part of his legacy. And I think it is it is a serious question to interrogate. Why, why can't we tell the full story of people, right? Because that's a part of his story. Yeah, you know, I, I think... Miles, happy you brought this up in this way. It is so interesting, especially with the public conversation talks about cancel culture and and this idea that there's such intense accountability. And then you look up and you're like, for who? For where? For there are people who choose who gets amplified and who doesn't. And those people seem to not care at all about these things. And the the NFL halftime show was also such a phenomenal example of using black people to to sort of uh, make up for systemic injustice in, in a specific context. So not only are there no black coaches, Brian Flores gets, he gets fired. Now he is an assistant coach for one of the only other black coaches that's there while he's still suing the NFL that, you know, people, NFL fans were promised it would change. You know, we're going to bring all these people to help make it better. We're going to do some things for, for black people. And then you realize that like that hasn't materialized and that they're going to, they literally drug every famous black person they could think of that we love out to do that halftime show. All of those people could, Mary could, I went to a Mary concert recently. Mary could have done a whole set herself, right? Whether you like, like 50 Cent had his own problems and Lord knows he is tough sometimes on the internet. He had enough hits that he could have done, you know, like all of them had enough hits that Snoop, Snoop, could have done his own, but they they needed to pack in as much to meet the criticism of the of the like the NFL itself. Uh, and I think you're right, you know, Miles and Kai, both of you. I it is really hard to think about sort of what people call genius, and I know this will go into the conversation about Kanye, but what people call genius, and not only deal with the cost because cost I think doesn't account for it, but like the harm done that allowed that what people call genius to flourish, like the the 
the people whose lives were intentionally ruined, the people who were intentionally hurt, the people who were trampled on, stomped on, to get people there just seems to be forgotten. And then Kanye, all of his antics around the internet and Kim and Pete, it's like, this is a classic sign of abuse. And if he was not famous, nobody would tolerate it. I mean, like, it would be a very clear, this is wrong. He should not be able to do this. But because it's Kanye, people are just entertaining it like it's fodder. And that just feels so wrong, too. Yeah. I think it's twofold for everything that everybody said. But I also think that it's a self-esteem issue in in, in, in our culture. And I think that Black genius is here. And I think I think... The way that Black genius manifests in a person is unique, but I don't think having Black genius is unique. So I think that sometimes we'll, we get we get so wrapped up in the idolatry and the fascination with the one person who gets in and the tokenism that we let certain behaviors go. But if once we start looking at Kaya and DeRay and saying these are Black geniuses too in their field and, and, and Miles is a Black genius and Kanye is a Black genius and Beyonce is a Black genius, then you stop like creating these bubbles because oh well we're gonna let this person behave this way or get away with these things because no that is something that is that is that is seated in us that is that is that that is blossoming and what we get to um the black genes part is really not in our business how we let it blossom and 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 and, and us doing it in a safe way in a way that still um respects other people's free will that's what makes us people to revere, not the fact that we have Black genius, because that's something that we all got. And I think that's a self-esteem thing that has to do with our um, democratization of, like, celebrity and all the other kind of more heady stuff that we talk about (laughs) privately. My news that I'm bringing is one of my... So I have... have these pop culture heroes that any single time that I'll bring the person up, they always look at me like, huh? like what? And they'll kind of do these screeching noises. But I really love, I really love cartoon characters as far as like, not literal, I do love little car- cartoon characters, but people who kind of exist one dimensionally and people who are just, who were just a part of my childhood that maybe you don't, we don't get to like dissect. And I, and I do love these icons and I do love people who just, who are just iconic to me, but also um, casual because they were in our infomercials. So that leads me to the fact that Miss Cleo is getting her own documentary. It seems like it's going to be a documentary. I got I got this news from um, Vibe. Um, shout out, this is like just an old school hip hop day. <laughs> shout out to shout out to Vibe. Still 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 giving us the the, the news and. Um, it was a re- it's it, it seems to be being gonna be handled with um with a lot of care and an integrity and I remember um a few years ago maybe three years ago now I actually did a um, article on Miss Cleo because I was so fascinated with her story I was fascinated that she was a lesbian woman that she actually was from um J- uh, J- Jamaica even though it was kind of like widespread that she was like faking certain like things but I, I'm I'm interested in, in in like is she from a Jamaican household how long she was in Jamaica all that other stuff. But what I was really interested in and what I'll forever be interested in is this is a, was a um, disempowered Black queer person who was able to uh, take their culture, take the horror and the and the, and the spookiness around their culture and, cre- and, and, and rebrand it into something that made her millions of dollars and that also was a blueprint for, for other artists and other people who were, in bet- we'll say, in between blessings <laughs> to create a way for them to get their blessings too. Um, namely, I think one of the more popular ones is Dionne Warwick. Most people know that she's had like she had a, a psychic hotline too. 
And I'm really fascinated with how Miss Cleo took something that was pretty demonized in culture and totally and totally um, reversed it. And I don't think that we will be having a moment on YouTube or moment in um on the in social media where astrology and tarot readings are so widespread and common. And even I think um the I think she helped in the popularization of the new age movement. And I think because she was so familiar, because it was happening on infomercials, because she took the scariness out of it and made it so um around the way and 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 made it less scary, I think she has a lot to do with it. And I think that sometimes people can just, you know, just see her as a joke or see her as this like one dimensional thing. But that's a really interesting thing for a black queer woman to do and to and to be presented with a set of um a, 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 an identity and and really figure out how to make millions of, of about it and um I also connected this with uh, the story of Julia Brown. Um, if you like Google Julia Brown, she was this mystic who was in the early 1900s in New Orleans, who was a healer. And the um, and the and the the curse of Julia Brown is that she um, uh, was healing people. The white people who she was healing ended up um, being uh, being nasty towards her. And when she died, a storm happened the same day of her funeral. And um, I think about how many of those stories are just like in the air around African and Black American spiritual practices. And how Miss Cleo said no. This this is a side of it too, and made it regular. And this has been such a journey. Like I think about how my mother was doing readings, and how you know gave me food because of readings, and how she made it more comfortable. And I'm just I don't know. I'm just excited. I'm excited to see what was going through her head. And I think that she's a marketing genius, and it worked. And like you know, and I think if I'm gonna praise and be fascinated with like Anna Delvey right now and watch that, then like I have to give it to Miss Cleo. So even if she was scamming, and it was a whole hoax. <laughs> I still I think that's worthy of storytelling because I you know the only thing I love more than a hero and a saint is a scammer. <laughs> so during Black History oh Month, goodness. so during Black History Month, you want to make sure that the black scammers get recognized. I love it. I like love it. I love off. it. I love it. I love it. You could be on my mug or you could have a mug shot. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I will say, Miles, that until you brought this to the conversation, I had not given Miss Cleo a thought <laughs> since the I don't know when. My, and I think it's wonderful how you have helped us to recast our thinking a little bit about Miss Cleo, because let me tell you what I thought about Miss <laughs> Cleo until this conversation that we were just having. She had a horrific Jamaican accent. It was so phony that it was ridiculous. And Caribbean people all over the place were like, what the? Mm." Um, And, you know, it was so obviously a scam and so obviously not real that it just became a joke in the community. And at the same time, the Psychic Friends Network made over a billion dollars off Miss Cleo a billion dollars. So it was a very expensive joke. It was a very lucrative joke. Um, I was doing some reading about the Psychic Friends Network and on average, so they would, you know, lure you in with a, you get a five minute, you get a free reading from Miss Cleo and the first five minutes were free. But on average, people spent 60 minutes on the telephone with these people at a rate of $4.99 an hour. What in tarnation? Nine times out of 10, you weren't talking to Miss Cleo. You were talking to some other little random people. And they had this thing going for a while before the 
FCC jumped in and uh, there were lawsuits and whatnot and it all came crashing down. Um, And so I'm excited to understand what happened to her after the Psychic Friends Network. Apparently, Miss Cleo was a scammer beforehand. She was a uh, an actor in theater, and she um, was given some money to produce a play, and apparently she ran out on the production and took the money. Um, and so it seems like she had a colorful life beforehand. She definitely had a colorful life during her time on the Psychic Friends Network. And I will be interested to see what happened to her afterwards and before her death. And I hope Shonda Rhimes hits this up, too. Uh, You know, your recontextualizing, I think, is brilliant. Uh, You know, I I think it also, I was reading something else, actually, about Anna Delvey um, and the whole inventing Anna moment. For people who don't know and aren't watching, can you just tell people who Anna Delvey is? Yeah, so Anna Delvey was, uh, Anna Delvey is a modern day scammer and she uh, legit had no money and no noticeable skills besides being just being able to play the con well and almost con these banks out of $40 million. I mean, she just, she really did just do it in a way that's incredible. But there's a show about her called... um, there's a show about her called Inventing Anna on Netflix that I did watch. I don't know if I'd recommend it. Spare yourself. Just read about it. But I was fascinated. But anyway, there's a there's a, one of her friends in it is a woman named Rachel who, like, participates in the scam and then loses and comes out like she's really pissed. But she wrote an article in Vanity Fair after it came out because she was not a part of the documentary. And she is really upset with Anna. She lost, whatever. She's upset, but she she wrote this. She said, I think promoting this whole narrative and celebrating a sociopathic, narcissistic, proven criminal is wrong. Williams told Vanity Fair in her first interview about the series. Having had a front row seat to the Anna Circus for too long, I've studied the way a con works more than anybody needs to. You watch the spectacle, but you're not paying attention to what's being marketed. And she goes on to, to essentially say that like, in, in a world that we live in today where there's just so much going on, she goes and says, attention is a form of currency. And if history is any indication, it's what Anna will continue to seek. It's what she needs in order to convince people to keep buying in our stories. And I, this idea of attention as a form of currency, I think, makes a lot of sense. And it goes to what Miles said, is that, you know, the thing that I remember about Miss Cleo is that she was just so familiar. Like, it wasn't even like a random person. It was like, oh, Miss Cleo. Like, it was just like, she was a part of what TV was. And I do think that she normalized psychic readings. I, as a kid, I thought it was weird that people would have like those little stories that were like, get a tarot card. I'm like, is Miss Cleo here? Like, how how dare you do a tarot card reading without Miss Cleo? Because Miss Cleo is really the only person that I know who can do them. And I don't even know Miss Cleo like that. So I'm interested to see her story. I, but like you, Kai, I look at the numbers and I'm like, people really were calling Miss Cleo. And if you thought you would get Miss Cleo on the phone, whew, she got you. And But also the sad part of how this always works even with the scammers, is that, you know, according to her, she got 24 cents for every dollar made, right? She was not, she was not coming out of this, um, you know, big baller. She definitely got paid, but not nearly for what, you know, the whole legitimacy of the Psychic Friends Network was Miss Cleo. I mean, she was the face, she was the voice, she was the persona, and she was not, uh, she was, she was not paid in that way. So I can't wait to see. Shout out to XTR, the company that's doing this. Bryn Mooser over there. We love, we love Bryn. Uh, shout out to that whole team. And I just, I just want to add like one little thing before we like move on to the next news is um, there's this uh, Instagram story that I saw on Dust Solidarity um, about something totally different, but I, but I think it 
I think it needs repeating for this conversation is that this nation really events because of our different like systems of, uh, of of oppression and our fascination with with celebrity, it really events scammers. It really events the need of this, and I think that's always good to say. And then I remember, um, so the, what was written on the person's Instagram story was, um, the Instagram is dust solidarity. Don't ever effing forget that crime is not real. Theft is survival. Drugs are coping. There are no perpetrators and victims among the exploited of the system. Only people who needs are systemically eradicated. If everyone had their needs met, none of this would be happening and i do think that it's hard when you have people on the very extreme sides of it it's hard to get that kind of empathy to towards them and i don't even know that if that's even what i'm trying to suggest but i think that just when you hear somebody doing something instead of saying you're the sociopath you're doing this thing um i think it just serves us better to say oh we're living in a sociopathic the air is sociopathic <laughs> the water we're drinking is sociopathic the 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 ways where we're we're being asked to um advance into into um into handle ourselves into engage with each other digitally and in person all of it sociopathic so of course it's going to produce somebody who is really really good at drinking the air or drink excuse me drink, drinking the water and breathing the air but i don't but i i i I think we should we should transcend just blaming individuals because it, it it stops the more interesting conversations from happening. That's my little t- my little um my little my little two cents. That was ten cents. That was a dime. Don't go anywhere. More politics. The people's coming. Politics. The people is brought to you by the Things That Go Boom podcast. Let's not sugarcoat it. Congress. Falling asleep at the wheel. The legislature has a constitutionally mandated part to play in guiding our role in the world. It has the power to declare war, decide how much money to put toward the military, oversees the Department of Defense, handles troops in conflict zones, a whole host of things. And over the past 20 years, however, Congress seems to have given up on this important role. From Afghanistan to arms sales, lawmakers seem to prefer to sit it out. Why is that? And as we make our way toward the midterms, what can be done to reassert Congress's authority as a co-equal branch of the government? Listen to the Things That Go Boom podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Pots of the Viewers brought to you by the Oregon State University eCampus. Now, here's the thing. Oregon State University is a nationally ranked leader in delivering degrees and programs online to students around the world. Their mission, to empower people like you with the knowledge you need to go out there and make a difference in the community. And how do they do that? You can look at things like a business and communications degree online. They have programs in fields like marketing, digital communication arts, and hospitality management. And you'll develop skills to become a leader and innovator who can meet challenges head on in a variety of industries. With Oregon State eCampus students located in all 50 states and more than 60 countries, you'll learn alongside a global network of classmates. Oregon State is consistently ranked one of the nation's 10 best providers of online education by U.S. News & World Report. And all online programs are developed by the same world-class faculty who teach on the campus at Oregon State. To take this next step in your journey, start online with Oregon State. Then go out there and make your mark. Learn more today at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash PSTP. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash PSTP. Pots of the people are sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships take work. A lot of us would drop anything to go help somebody that we care about. We'll go out of our way to help people, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? I love therapy. I go once a week now. I've gone twice a week. For a long time, the cool part is that I've learned a set of skills for how to manage anxiety in my life, how to see it, how to give name to my emotions, how to talk through things. 
And BetterHelp, this is where BetterHelp comes in. This month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to take care of your most important relationship, the one you have with yourself. Whether it's hitting the gym, making time for your haircut, or even trying therapy, you are your greatest asset. So invest the time and effort into yourself like you do for other people. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Pod Save the People listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash people. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash people. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. My news today is in honor of uh, Black History, which is every day, every day. And February is just the kickoff month for the year-long celebration. Um, And so in the spirit of remembering, 
Um, 100 years ago today, something very interesting happened. Today, technically, when you all hear this, it'll be Tuesday, but today technically is Sunday, February 20th. And on February 20th, 1922, Mississippi's state Senate voted to send all of the state's Black people to Africa. What? Yes. Uh, there were a number of European countries who owed the United States war debts from World War I. And a very crafty state senator in Mississippi named Senator Tory George McCallum came up with a very interesting idea. His idea was instead of asking these European countries for cash in payment of their war debts, each of these European countries had colonies all over the world, including Africa. And so he decided what we should do as a country is ask some of these European countries to pay their debts by giving us some of their land in Africa and repatriating Negroes to Africa. In fact, um, he asked for uh, President Warren G. Harding to acquire by treaty negotiation or otherwise from our late war allies sufficient territory on the continent of Africa to make a suitable, proper, and final home for the American Negro, where under the tutelage of the American government, he can develop for himself a great republic to become in time a free and sovereign state and take its place at the council board of the nations of the world. And in fact, the state Senate voted on this proposal 25 to nine, um, passing it to ask these folks to um, give us some, some land in Africa to put the black people on. Now, were black Mississippians who were 52% of the population consulted? No, not at all. Um, and thankfully, this, while it passed the Senate, it did not pass the House, it did not move forward. But I think that it is an important part of history. It's not the first time that um, that folks were looking for black black people to be repatriated to Africa as part of the answer to what was called the Negro question. Um, and there were very strange bedfellows in this conversation. So there were a number of black people, most notably Marcus Garvey, who was a renowned black separatist who were like, yep, give us the land, let us get out of here, y'all don't want us no way, and so peace, let us go do our thing. You've heard the expression, politics make strange bedfellows. Marcus Garvey, in fact, sent a letter uh, to Senator McCallum praising him for this proposal. Um, there were Black newspapers who you know, wrote about how crazy of an idea this was, um, but there were also Black newspapers who wrote that this was a great idea. Um, in fact, there's the story is in the Washington Post and they do a really good job of pulling together all of the interesting nuances of this story, which are far too uh, long to recount all of here on the pod. But a little known fact is that there were lots of people interested in the colonization of Black people back to Africa, one of whom was your good friend, Abraham Lincoln. You know, the emancipator. Um, he actually was drawn repeatedly to the idea, says the article, 
And in fact, in 1862, Congress passed a bill allocating $600,000 for the colonization of formerly enslaved people living in the District of Columbia. They always messing with us. Why are they always messing with Black people in D.C.? Anyway, Lincoln sent a free young Black man named John Willis Menard to British Honduras, now Belize, to scout it as a potential location. He went to the Danish Virgin Islands, British Guyana, Dutch Suriname were also considered. He actually struck up a deal to send people to Panama, and they had an experiment where they sent 453 Blacks from Virginia to an island in Haiti. There was disease, there was mutiny, and 350 survivors came back to Virginia less than a year later. Y'all, I raise this because um, a lot of what is happening right now is reminiscent of the very conversations that people were having in 1922 or during Reconstruction, right behind emancipation, um, that uh, about Black people in America. And in fact, there is a particular quote that I want to read, which sounds like it could be heard on a right-wing radio show today. Um, Senator McCallum made clear that the spirit of race consciousness he cared about belonged to white people. The goal, he wrote, was that our country may become one in blood as it is in spirit, and that the dream of our forefathers may be realized in the final colonization of the American Negro on his native soil. The resolution does not specifically state whether the proposed mass migration would be voluntary so the thing, the thing about this is that a lot of the language that they use to justify sending Black people out of the country um, is really a lot of the same rhetoric that we hear um, in, you know, in references to making America great again, or the patriotism rhetoric that is coming from the far right um, that we all know to be dog whistle politics. And so um, what this also made me think about was was a story by Derek Bell, who is in the news as he's the father of critical race theory. But more than that, he was the first black tenured professor at Harvard Law School. He wrote a book called Faces at the Bottom of the Well, which literally changed my life. You should go get that book. But there's a story in there called Space Traders. And in the story, a group of aliens come from out of space and promise to solve all of the United States problems, environmental problems, financial problems, et cetera, et cetera, in exchange for all of the Black people. And there's a big conversation, a national conversation that ensues around whether or not we should send Black people out to the aliens in order to fix our country. Um, and so you should read Space Traders. I won't give away the ending. Um, there's also an HBO, I think, movie called Space Traders. Um, but I, I bring this up because we're having conversations about teaching accurate history and all of these things. And part of accurate, an accurate recounting of history is multiple times over the course of the last few hundred years when our white leaders have actually wanted to remove Black people from the face of America. That's what we're dealing with. Happy Black History Month. The thing that I'll add here is, uh, you know, people often talk about racism as if it just shows up in people's living rooms and kitchens and on their porches. Uh, they they forget that this was not just the U.S. Congress, but this was municipal governments up and down every ladder, school boards, legislatures. 
it was all those. And when you look at the historical record, the inequalities that exist in communities today are not simply the byproduct of the federal government, not simply the byproduct of individual decisions made by people sitting in their homes, but also the intentional byproduct of decisions made in legislatures for specific purposes at every level. And this is just such an incredible reminder because people, um, you know, I think sometimes forget that these that these legislatures have a huge impact on like how big amounts of money flow, right? So like how, where things get built, you know, who is prioritized to save or help in disasters or who gets schools, like the macro decisions that people, I think, take for granted in a way that you probably should if everything worked. Like you, you, sh- you the individual citizens should not be stressed out about the placement of stop signs because you just assume that they are going to be done right. Or like, you know, whether the school is going to have running water, but over and over, it's just a reminder that legislatures actively work to disrupt the lives of Black people in intentional ways. Yeah. I... <laughs> uh, I think the, the more interesting part... I mean, I, I agree with what everybody what everybody said so far, but I think the interesting part is that, like, this, this debate and this, like, tension between, like, segregation and integration and, like, leaving and, like, even now, like, there's still, you know... Uh, I know people who are, like, who are um, signing up for... Um, or attempting to sign up for citizenship in Ghana and, like, who, who, who still want to leave. So these ideas aren't... It's interesting that a politic is a politic and like depending on whose mind and who's and who and who's kind of grabbing it, it depends how like we receive it because of course doing like, making somebody do something against their free will is like horrendous and and duh. But then also I think that um it's really hard to be an adult in America and to never think to yourself privately or publicly, and I'm about to do it publicly, but like things that you privately publicly and be like, well, maybe, 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 maybe that redneck was right. Maybe I do need to go back home. Like, maybe, maybe, maybe that's not such a bad idea. Or what does that look like? Or what is that? What, what would that really feel like? And what? And, and how can I actually get there and stuff like that? But then I also get. like reminded that um being black american is such a um a a mix of things now you know so even when people think like i think in good faith when other black people really think about that i think being black american is a combination of different things that is not simply what i want to say simply it's not african anymore or just african anymore and i think that people don't really gauge the new set of problems that we would um face if we were to even like seriously think that or there to be like a serious avenue in 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 doing that but um yeah that's really all i had to add was that um (laughs) i I thought the 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 most interesting part was that like marcus Garvey was like yes (laughs) let's 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 have that happen because i think that it's hard to be black and not to think that maybe I maybe I inherited a set of problems that um a, 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 I, I, can, I can move away from and maybe the, and maybe that's actually the answer um and I know um I've definitely uh thought about it felt that way before too um but again when when whiteness comes to work they eliminate choice they eliminate humanity and all these other things and and that's when it becomes you know um an assault on on human rights is when you don't give people the choice to be able to do what they want to do and you force it because you think you know better for their lives than they do. And that's the unique, despicable thing about, um, you know, whiteness as politic. It's that for me, Miles, right? Because as somebody who recently bought a house overseas, just in case, um, <laughs> I fundamentally believe that 
you know, maybe, maybe we do want to be in a different place. I think about it often as equally as I think about the fact that my ancestors built this country and I have a right to be here. If I choose to go abroad, then that's my business. But what's not going to happen is the American government is not going to force me out of here and put me on a ship and send me somewhere where I don't have a connection and where, you know, I might have ancestral connections. But it's, you know, we're seeing the same thing happen. The the same thing was trying to happen in a Dominican Republic where they were repatriating Black Dominicans to Haiti. Many of those people had never lived in Haiti their entire lives and hadn't been in Haiti for generations. And so for governments to decide that they are going to solve a cultural problem by um, by shipping people off, that that is unacceptable. Um, and, and, and it is complex because another set of folks who were against the proposal in 1922 were um, plantation owners who were still... Um, who were, you know, using tenant farmers and sharecroppers. And they were like, no, these Black people can't go nowhere because we need them to work on our land, right? So it is a complex um, conversation. And I encourage people to read the article or to um, to read Space Traders because in all of these, you get to see a lot of different perspectives, all of which hold water. Um, the only thing that doesn't hold water, in my estimation, is the government making a unilateral decision about a people's destiny. Um, so my news is about welfare. One of the big things that happened with welfare reform, if you remember back in the Clinton era, welfare reform was a big part of the plan there. In 1996, one of the ways that one of the biggest parts of welfare reform is that it it changed how states could essentially make eligibility for access to welfare. So they could um, they could force people to find jobs before they get cash assistance. They could do a whole lot of things um, that they couldn't do before. And they also could like, you know, fund employment and, and subsidize childcare and stuff like that. But the introduction of work requirements and other sort of loopholes or, or things to go through to make people prove that they are worthy was one of the big pieces of welfare reform. If you remember back in that time, the image was like the lazy Black woman who is like abusing the system and wasting resources. So how that brings us to today, so there's this really great article in ProPublica titled, States are hoarding $5.2 billion in welfare funds even as the need for aid grows. And what sort of blew my mind is that there are 25 states that essentially are like just hanging out with their money. Half of the states in the United States are just like, they have a ton of money left in TANA for temporary assistance to needy families, which is what people call welfare. And they are essentially just sitting on the fund. So, you know, like I said, $5.2 billion. Uh, the article highlights that Hawaii, Tennessee, and Maine are the biggest uh, hoarders of cash. And the story that is recounted in this article is a is a mother who has, has a kid and she is trying to get on welfare. They tell her she needs a job to be eligible. She's like, this is the whole point. I can't get a job, but I need to feed my kids. Then she gets it like just more hoops and she gets kicked. It's like a whole process. Um, but they go on to talk about how in Tennessee, $790 million in federal welfare money is just sitting around. It's the largest pool of unspent welfare dollars anywhere, though they have said they're going to spend it. Hawaii, $364 million just sitting in an account. Uh, Oklahoma, 
$264 million, which is nearly double its annual allotment of $138 million a year. But it's one of those things that the government actually, you know, when we talk about the big federal bills, it's like we actually do fund some of this stuff well. We don't fund it enough. I mean, there's always more, but we fund it well. But it only works if the money actually gets down to the individual person. And when we talk about people in power being predators to people who live in poverty or like allowing poverty to flourish or encouraging poverty so people cannot gain political power, this is actually one of the best examples that I've seen recently because it's not that there's not money. It's not that there's not resources. This is literally an unwillingness to allow poor people to access things that we've already said that we're going to give them so they suffer. I don't know another way to think about this. And again, as we see, you know, rising child poverty. So 16% of children under under age 18 in the U.S. live in poverty, which is up from 14.4% uh, in the year before the data. So I say all that to say that like child poverty is rising. The money is specifically supposed to decrease child poverty. The money is there to the billions and we have not spent it. It also, I was re- I was um, reading this article about Hawaii and how a lot of um, Native Hawaiians are actually being priced out of their um, of their homes, and so a lot of um, Native Hawaiians are actually um, experiencing homelessness because of the large amount of people moving to places like um, Hawaii, like to uh, a lot of like wealthy Americans moving to places like Hawaii and Puerto Rico, their territories, and um, and, and, and basically pricing people who are native to those um, lands out of their homes. And this makes me think of that because I'm like, oh, there's actually a, uh, there's help right there that's just not, that's not reaching those people in, 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 you know, I've, I've taken this stand a lot during this podcast, but I, I'm always going to use my imagination to think of a place, think of a a, a a nation where no matter what, no matter where you decide to live, that there is some type of infrastructure to make sure you're always housed and that you have a regular income and that anything else that you get on top of that, when we talk about careers and stuff like that, is literally extra. Like, I think that no matter where you live, you should always be able to get that. And I know that sounds extremely maybe like fantastical for some people, but it's it's articles like that where I'm like, oh, we got the bread. <laughs> we we got the money. We have we we have, we 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 have we have the minds. We just need to have like the the willingness to do it and also have the the moral integrity to um to to press the button sometimes because that's what that feels like. That feels like a moral integrity problem. I can't see how you can ever be involved in, um, have power in politics in any of those states and know that you have homeless people in that state and knowing you have maybe hungry people in that state and know you have this money and not figure out a way that, that would, that would, gnaw at my soul at night to know that there are people who are the children and, 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 and people in general who are hungry or homeless or who do not have enough and I literally have the account and all I have to do is figure out a way to tunnel the money through there that's that's ridiculous that's that that's we we border on something evil that's evil villain land to me <laughs> once you once you once you see it and you don't and you don't create that tunnel for people Miles, I was thinking the same thing. Who are the people making these policies and how do they live with themselves? I mean, in in the state of Maine, they've limited the lifetime welfare eligibility to five years. So if you poe for longer than five years or if you used to be poor, but then you get okay and then something happens again, you, you don't have any options. What kind of rule is that and who made that up? Who thought that was so great? Or in Oklahoma... 
I mean, one of the things that was so galling to me is that all of these officials are like, well, so many fewer people in our state need TANF. What? Like poverty has risen nationally. COVID has taken people out. And what has happened, the reason why there are fewer people on TANF rolls is because they've made it harder to to uh, access TANF. They have all of these crazy requirements. And because lots of people, I mean, when you... Getting TANF actually makes you ineligible for other benefits like child support. And so people are making a conscious economic choice. I mean, literally, like in Texas, they deny 90% of the applicants for TANF in the year 2020. 2020, we are in a global pandemic, right? People needed money. And so these people who make these rules, in some cases um, in, in Oklahoma, the cash assistance that you can get from TANF is capped at $292 for a family of three people for a month. How how are three people living off of $300 for a whole month? Nowhere, anywhere. That can't happen. But there are, you know, all of these spokespeople in this article who are telling you about how fewer people need TANF. And that's why we have all of this money and we're going to, and, and when pressed, they're like, well, we're going to spend the money. And they're not talking about spending the money on cash transfers, which have been shown to um, significantly improve the lives of impoverished people with all of, the, all of the accompanying research that shows that they don't buy sneakers or bags or whatever you thought they were going to buy, drugs or liquor. They pay rent. They give their kids school supplies and whatnot. We did a whole piece on that with the child subsidy that that experienced expired in December. But these people, as they talk about how they're going to spend this money that they've been sitting on, all they're talking about is expanding the hoops that people have to jump through. Well, we're going to give money to the nonprofit sector, to all of these job coaches, career coaches, and and these nonprofits that help poor people. Get the money to the poor people and stop acting crazy with it, right? Like, why is it that even when we have the money, even when we have demonstrated the need, in fact, one of the officials says that if COVID wasn't the rainy day that like you needed to spend all of this money, then we'll never have another rainy day. Give the money to the people. We have the money. You're going to get more money next year. That's what block grants do. Get the money to the people and stuff. This was this was galling, frankly, to read about these state officials who are holding these billions of dollars and people in their state are literally not eating. Before we hop off, I just want to say thank y'all for listening. We have been getting, we get love all the time, but we don't always shout it out here on the podcast. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you. You know, I will give one shout out. There is when we, there's some of the ads that I read and there's one listener in particular who sends me the funniest messages about them. So shout out to her. We've DM before and I'm like, you are hilarious. So um, thank you for keeping me on my toes. Yeah, I just want to give a shout out to um, the Twitter user by But Wait. Um, they said, good morning. Just reached out to let you know I loved your segment on the late, great Betty Davis this week. I learned so much. And your love and passion were both moving, inspiring, sending love and gratitude. You know, being new to the podcast and being new to the family, those type of messages make me feel like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm doing something right. So thank you so much. 
Another review we got from a listener named Kai Breezy says, absolutely love this podcast. This podcast has been my lifeline through the pandemic. I look forward to every episode. It feels like hanging with friends during a time when we can't hang with friends. Thank you. And that's the thing that I love about this podcast, that every week I get to hang out with my friends, especially my young friends who keep me hip and my cool friends. Can I tell you what happened? I was watching um, TV this week and Blackish, the TV show Blackish, had a little Black History sort of commercial, and they're talking about past people in Black history, and they're talking about present people in Black history. And Junior, who is one of the characters on the show, was like, yeah, people like DeRay McKesson. And I was like, I know him. I know him. He's my friend. He's creating Black history. And so I'm excited, just like our listeners are, to be on the podcast, to be hanging with friends, and to be hanging with friends like... DeRay McKesson, who is creating Black history, and Miles Johnson, who is a Black genius, and Diara Ballinger, who is a Black justice warrior. And, and Kaya, yeah, who got that. a house overseas. <laughs> <laughs> and Kaya, who is a education legend, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. Last month, Diara shared a Washington Post article about a film, Invisible Warriors, African-American Women in World War II, showcasing Black women who were involved in the wartime effort. Director and producer of the film, Professor Gregory Cook, is here with us today to talk about his research into Black folks' involvement in the World War II effort. Many historians say that roughly 600,000 African-American women who worked at offices, shipyards, and factories building parts for planes, weapons, and ships never received much recognition. Professor Cook gave them their flowers with this film. We take a deep dive into the lives of nine brave Black Rosie the Riveters during that time on the job and how their experiences then have impacted them in the now. The documentary may be screening in a city near you. Here's my conversation with Professor Gregory Cook. Here we go. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Grove Collaborative. Now, I love Grove because it's it's a one-stop shop for anything eco-friendly or conscious about the environment that you might need to buy. And I just got a whole set of, um, what are those like, what are those balls that you put in the, in the dryer? They're like, dryer balls, dryer balls. (laughs) Instead of using, cause I was going through them dry sheets. Let me tell you, I was going through them dry sheets, but now I got some dry balls through Grove Collaborative and they're actually great. And did you know that only 9% of plastic actually gets recycled? No matter how much we put in our recycling bin, at Grove Collaborative, they believe it's time to ditch single-use plastics for good. And single-use a lot of things. I'm telling you, I was wearing them dry sheets out. And now the dry balls that I got are actually amazing. And Grove carries hundreds of products aimed at replacing single-use plastics across your home and personal care routine. And by 2025, Grove will be 100% plastic-free. Switch to sustainable products for everyone in your home, from laundry care, which is me, to hand soaps and more. Grove has you covered with safe formulas and refillable packaging that never compromises on performance. Join over 2 million households already shopping sustainably at Grove. Go to grove.com slash PSTP today to get a free gift set worth up to $50 with your first order. Plus, shipping is fast and free. Get started right now at grove.com slash PSTP. That's grove.com slash PSTP. 
Positive Views brought to you by Just Egg. New year, new eggs. That's the thing people say right now. Y'all know people don't say that, but we love Just Egg. So Just Egg is something that I have not only enjoyed alone, but also with my friends. And we want, me and one of my best friends, uh, we were, put, he was making breakfast at his house and I had given him some Just Egg to share. And he called me, he was like, are you sure he's not egg eggs? And I was like, no, that's not even, this is plants. He was like, no. And I was like, no, it really is. And he was like, DeRay. And it's one of those things where, like, that's the best part about it is that the flavor remains, the taste remains, but it's a plant-based egg that'll give you the most decadent quiches of your life, the fluffiest scrambled eggs, the easiest egg sandwiches of all times. It has about the same protein as a chicken egg and less saturated fat. Plus, Just Egg is packed with cholesterol-lowering polyunsaturated fat. Chicken eggs wish they were this healthy. And... Because just it comes from plants, you're also helping to save our planet. So that's nice if you're into that. But I will tell you, I tricked my friend the other day because he he really did thought I was like scamming. And I was like, no, Trey, these are plants. I love the foldable. They have these like foldable egg like sheets. I don't know what you call them, but they it's literally like a pressed out omelet. And what I do is I fill it up with vegetables and you know, whatever else I want in my omelet and I roll it up and I put it in the pan, heat it up and it's done. I got a little breakfast wrap that has no carbs and is as eggy as any regular egg. And so I'm a total fan. Um, In fact, I'm also watching my cholesterol. And so Just Egg is helping me do that in a very easy way. So show off the new cholesterol for you by buying a bottle of Just Egg today uh, and by doing the planet a solid all at the same time. Just Egg. Really good eggs. Today's episode of Potting the Viewers brought to you by Dems. If you have investments, odds are high that your money has been winding up in places you would never put it on purpose. And here's why. A lot of Americans own S&P 500 tracker funds. These are funds made up of the largest U.S. publicly traded companies, and they collectively contain over $1.5 trillion of Americans' retirement money. Unfortunately, when you buy an S&P 500 index fund, you're buying stock in companies like Halliburton, one of the nation's biggest defense contractors, which has funneled millions to the GOP. Dems is the first investment product that was constructed with the goal of getting you the same performance and exposure you would expect from the S&P 500 without all the Ted Cruz, Matt Gates, and Mitch McConnell. It only includes companies that have made over 75% of their political contributions to Democratic causes and candidates. You can finally put your money where your vote is. Search for the Dems ticker, that's D-E-M-Z, wherever you invest, or visit Dems.fund to learn more. Remember, investing involves risk. Principal loss is possible. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and additional information can be found in the fund's summary or full prospectus, which may be obtained by visiting dems.fund. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. 
Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Professor Cook, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you very much for having me. Um, uh, it's a great honor to uh, be on your show, and it's a great honor to have the opportunity to uh, spread the word about African-American women and their contributions to American history. So this is so interesting because it's one of those um, things where Diara mentioned this documentary on the podcast when we were talking about it. And then it was like, well, let's just see if we can get them on to talk about it. And then we got you. And then I got to see it and everything. So uh, so this is about Invisible Warriors, African-American women in World War II, uh, the documentary that you did that was covered in the news. And that's how we found about it. But can you start us with how did you even come to study these issues? How did you come to learn about it? Like, how'd you get here? Going on 35 years ago, almost 35 years ago, I was uh, spiritually compelled and that's the only word I can use to, to begin to frame what happened. I was spiritually compelled to go to uh, Bastogne, Belgium. Bastogne is in southern Belgium. It's in the Ardennes Forest, and it was the focal point of the World War II Battle of the Bulge, which was the largest uh, battle the U.S. Army has ever fought. And there were thousands of black men in that battle. And so when I went to Bastogne, I, I went into the museum, and for the first time in my life, I saw African Americans in a museum related to World War II. And uh, I saw African American men in the diorama, and when I had that experience, it was like an aha moment in life. After that, I started reading uh, about you know everything I could about African Americans in World War II, especially those in Europe. And so what I found that, um, just for example, there were, at the end of the war, there were four, about 455,000 African Americans in Europe fighting the war. So I started doing research. I, I, I came upon uh, the African American experience in Great Britain prior to D-Day. There were 140,000 African Americans in, in Great Britain. And the dynamics of that were really compelling. But while I was there doing research, that's when I stumbled upon African-American. Uh, that's when I stumbled upon Rosie the Rivers. I mean, Great Britain had their, had their female war workers, too. I don't think they called them, gave them a nickname. But as a result of that, I started looking back in the States. And when I started looking back in the States, 
that's when I stumbled upon African-American Rosie the Riveters, uh, so to speak. And uh, there was a professor, Dr. Maureen Honey. She's actually in the documentary. She had uh, published a book called Bitter Fruit. And it was about letters and editorials and poetry, largely written by black women during the war about their experiences. And it was her book, Bitter Fruit, where I stumbled upon the 600,000 figure. And then I did additional research and it held up. There were 600,000 black women who we now call Rosa Derivators. And from that, I was able to connect it to a story my mother used to tell me when I was about four years old. My mother has since transitioned, and I didn't really make this connection until after she left. But uh, when I was about four years old, my mother used to tell me a story about how she rode in 1943, how she rode on her suitcase, on her suitcase, from Norfolk, Virginia to Washington, D.C. in 1943, to get her to get her first job. Actually, she told me she was 18, which meant it was 1943. She had just graduated high school, and so she got went to Washington and got her very first job as a clerk typist in the um, in the U.S. Patent Office. And while my mother's job was not it was a mostly a traditional female job, what the, the two points about that I'd like to make one is that prior to the war. A lot of those kinds of jobs, administrative assistants, file clerks, typists, were actually held by white men. And so when the war came, they went into the military. Because of the war, and only because of the war, my mother was able to get that job. Because prior to the war, it would have been impossible for her to get get a job as a clerk typist in the federal government in Washington. And so that's the the abbreviated version about how I got here. And and I'm, uh, and one of the things I'm really proud of as a result of my learning about my mother's story, I've expanded the understanding of who Rosie's were. My mother was involved in the war. She was, she was involved in the war effort. And during the war, technology exploded, which meant patents, right? I have no idea what she typed, but one thing is true was true then, that's true today. Nothing happens anywhere unless someone types up a piece of paper for it to happen. Uh, our paper today is electronic, digital paper, but that's still the process. And so my mother, she contributed to the war. And, and to that extent, you know, she's included, as were thousands of other black women who came to Washington during the war. Now, can you zoom all the way out and tell people what's the war you're talking about? What's this moment? You know, because for a lot of a lot of people, they will need the context. And then, um, yeah, let's start there, and then we'll keep going. Okay. Well, we're really we're talking about World War II. the The Eurocentric perspective of World War II is September 9, nineteen forty. Uh, I'm sorry, September nine, nineteen thirty nine, which is when Germany invaded Poland. Uh, America got involved in World War II, December seventh, nineteen forty one, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. The war ended in September, uh, officially ended in September 1945. So it lasted, the Eurocentric perspective of World War II lasted approximately about almost exactly six years. And is there another perspective on World War II? Well, the reality is that if you look at it in a global context, which World War II was a global context, World War II really started in 1931 when the Japanese invaded Manchuria in China. 
and and that invasion was part of the Japanese uh, doctrine, if you will, to expand their empire, uh, seeking natural resources and to acquire land. And so when J- Japan invaded Manchuria in 1931, it was just beginning the beginning of a sequence of steps that led to eventually Japan attacking the American uh, Pearl Harbor in 1941. But they were systemically uh, conquering territories in Asia and East Asia leading up to that. But it was all part of the same the, the same activity. So. That's why I say, you know, we generally accept the Eurocentric perspective. But remember, these people were Japanese. And from a Eurocentric perspective, that's on the other side of the world. That didn't matter, although it did. And eventually the Japanese formed an alliance with the Germans and Adolf Hitler and the Italians and Benito Mussolini. But that really was the beginning of the hostilities that culminated in, in, in that, Euro, that Eurocentric perspective of World War II. And it wasn't until the, the British and the, and the French declared war on Germany in 1940, I'm sorry, 1939, that is what people generally look at World War as a starting point of World War II. So can you help us understand, so we think about the context of World War II, uh, you know, six years to some, more to others. What were the things that people needed to do? Like, why was it important that Black women were a part of it? What did, like, how did the whole society need to mobilize? Because for most of us, including myself, like, I wasn't alive, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I and even in watching this, I saw the incredible mobilization of a whole host of people. And I'm like, whew, that is, that's wild. And I had the luxury of watching it. Can you help contextualize, like, was there really that much work for everybody to do? Why why is it important to highlight the work that Black women did? yeah, like all of it. Well, first thing I want to say is black women have always worked from the time we got here. <laughs> you know, black women have always worked. But World War II represented total war on the planet for the first time. And so for the first time, uh, civilian populations were mobilized uh, to support the military. And, and World War II was very unique. So World War II was a global war. You needed people to supply the arms and the ammunition and the other support services of war. So if you send 16 million people, if you put 16 million people in the military, which is what uh, the U.S. military was at the end of the war, there were 16 million people in it, overwhelmingly males, then someone has to do those jobs that men traditionally did. And I would also say white men traditionally did, because most of these jobs were were closed to black men prior to the war also. So you mobilize the, the, the whole society and you needed women to build planes and tanks and, and go into offices, uh, government offices, etc. Uh, it was just a man, uh, man and woman power thing that you needed everyone involved. And I'd also say it's in my opinion, the only time in American history where everybody, pretty much everybody, was pulling in the same direction. Now, because of America and its racism, blacks and whites pulled separately, but we were still pulling in the same direction. It would have been very difficult to find anybody in America, any family, 
in America who didn't have skin in the war, whether they were in the military, whether they were uh, a war a war worker, somebody involved in bond drives, uh, uh, going out and collecting aluminum. You know, it just consumed and, and, and required the entire population, you know, the large part of the population in order for this to work. And so that's why um, there were so many people involved, and that's why women became part of the workforce in ways that they had never been part of the workforce before. They were needed. And how did you find such incredible footage? You know, I'm, I'm looking at some of these interviews and, you know, to hear people, to hear Black women who are alive, like talk about being sharecroppers and mm-hmm. um and all these things, which is, which feels to so many people like it's so far away. And like, that was hundreds of years ago. Like, how did you find all this footage of, of that era? Was it just hidden somewhere? Was it lost? Was, was it like a family footage that you found? Well, I actually interviewed the women, the the interviews you see in color. I, I actually interviewed those women. So I, I know them, knew them. Some of them have since transitioned since the interviews, but I knew all those women and I interviewed them. As far as the B-roll, the footage you see, a lot of it is, is uh, military footage, you know, taken by, by mostly by the army, some by the Navy. And then uh, what's interesting about invisible warriors, and it kind of speaks to the status of black women and how black people in general and black women in particular were seen in the war. Invisible Warriors, it has a running time of 65 minutes, but there are more than, there are about 450 images in the documentary, still images. That's a lot for one hour, but I had to use what was there. So there wasn't a lot of B-roll. There wasn't a lot of film of black women working in factories and doing these other jobs. Right. But there were more still images that I was able to find. They're in the Library of Congress and and places like that. As far as I know, for example, I've never seen any type of recruitment poster geared towards uh, recruiting black women during World War Two, whether for for civilian jobs or for enlistment in the military. What surprised you in putting this together? Was there anything that you learned that was like, wow, this, is, uh, this isn't what I thought, or like it was surprising to you? I think there were two points. The first was I have eight, eight Rosies in my documentary, and only one of those women understood her historic significance. The other women in my documentary, except for Dr. Dorothy Height, she understood immediately. She lived through the time, and she was a mover and shaker in Washington. But the other women had no idea of the historic significance. I had to give them a brief history lesson and convince them to be in the documentary. And I understood where they were coming from. For them, it was a job. It was the best paying job they they could have ever imagined, but it was just a job. And so after the war, uh, they went on, got on with their lives. And for the most part, no one ever asked them about what they did during the war. And uh, and sometimes it, it might come up in family discussions, but that's really where it stopped. But for the most part, these women didn't really talk about what they did during the war. And so that was very surprising to me that they had never that, that they just had no context or understanding of how historically significant they were. And the other thing that was surprising to me was that, you know, I've moved in the, in the realm of academics for years. And, and the other thing that was surprising to me 
was that many, many, overwhelmingly most African-American scholars, historians, knew nothing. Did I, at least that I talked to, knew nothing about uh, these women. And that was kind of surprising to me. But then as I look at that, uh, for some reason, and I don't know why this is, in my opinion, World War II has been largely, has not been covered and and analyzed nearly as much as I believe it should have been. Uh, There are a lot of black scholars that deal with the Civil War, Reconstruction, right? And so they should, but World War II, in my opinion, was the greatest event, singular event in human history. And in my opinion, World War II was the most significant event of the 20th century for African-Americans. Because without World War II, we might have had we I assume we would have had a civil rights movement, but in all likelihood, it would have come much later in the century. And and what's important about so that's why I say that those were the two surprises, really, that, uh, you know, the women themselves didn't really understand their significance. And the black scholars have um, largely ignored World War Two and or not definitely not given it the kind of attention it deserves from an African-American perspective. One of the surprising people was A. Philip Randolph. I saw, you know, they talk about him as an organizer and then they they contextualize the support that Black women have for his organizing and the organizing in, in Black communities and how uh, it was the presence of a mobilized core of Black people that sort of forced the president's hand. Can you talk about why that moment was significant? Yeah, A. Philip Randolph was a giant in the American labor movement. He formed the first uh, largest union, black union, uh, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And they were the black men who uh, worked on America's passenger railroads, you know, dining cars and dining cars and, and, and bedroom cars, et cetera, you know, catering overwhelmingly to and exclusively pretty much to white clientele. And so A. Philip Randolph had formed this union. And so as a result of that, he had a great deal of, of uh, muscle and clout. And so the, the, if you were Pullman Porter, it was one of those jobs in the black community where you got big time respect and you got to ride all over the country. And so because he had this kind of, you know, social capital and muscle in the black community and in the labor movement, He put that to work. So in June 1940, now this is like a year and a half before America even got into the war, but in June 1940, he was organizing uh, the first great march on Washington. He was going to have 100,000 black folks come to Washington to demonstrate and protest against hiring practices and discriminatory practices and, and employment. Uh, both in the federal government and in the private sector, right? So as a result of of that pressure that he was going to bring, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt pretty much blinked and said, okay, call off the the march, and he signed Executive Order 8802, which then forbid the discrimination, uh, hiring against blacks, women, et cetera, in uh, companies that receive government contracts, which is pretty much everybody. Now, just because he passed 8802, there were still a lot of companies and businesses that either ignored it altogether or only partially enforced it. I'd also like to say A. A. Philip Randolph is the same guy, along with Bayard Rustin, who organized the 1963 
March on Washington, where, where King did his I Have a Dream speech. So, uh, and so, you know, A. Philip Randolph is a giant in terms of African-American history. He was a socialist, which, you know, may or may not play well with some people, but uh, he was central to helping to uh, establish the black middle class and support the black middle class in America. Boom. Can you tell people, can people watch the film right now? How can people get access to the film? Is there a way? Not really. It's not, it's not ready for public distribution yet. What I do is select screenings. So, for example, Morgan State University on March 10th is, is doing a screening. And they're also honoring one of the Roses in the film, Mrs. Susan King, who's 97, going on 98. She's a Morgan alum. So there is a, a screening on March 10th. People must register. And there's some other screenings coming up as well that I'm doing, but that's the, the closest one. But it is not available to the public yet as, as something just being out there. Got it. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.